Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review, episode 312, Merge Branch Foppy. This is Tom Lawrence. And Phil Parada. We are missing Tony and Jay today. Uh, they had some other things to do, and we're actually starting, it's like the Sunday afternoon Linux Review, or Sunday evening Linux Review. Sunday Review. evening Linux Review. Yeah. It's okay. It'll still be published on Monday morning like it always is, but uh, nonetheless, we uh even though they couldn't make it, we still want to get an episode out, so uh, we, there's definitely some news to talk about and uh, fun stuff like that, and especially the floppy going away is the merge branch floppy, so we'll talk about that. It's not going to be maintained in a Linux kernel anymore, uh, but we'll start with, what have you been up to, Phil? Uh, we just had a housewarming party uh, yesterday. We got to see all of our friends, family, and neighbors, and that was a great time. Um, as far as computers go... Uh, Lots of opening bugs on open, free open source projects, um, updating systems, the usual, making sure that the internet stays running safely and securely. Yes, and securely is popular because we were having a discussion about a local company that was not doing things perhaps in a secure manner. So, <laughs> Oh, woof. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's always, it's, it's uh, not directly related to Linux at all, so it's not going to be a discussion topic on the show, but it will be a discussion that we'll be talking about on how they got hacked. So that'll be... Uh, <laughs> We've been uh, doing, and that's what I've been up to, is actually uh, diving more into all the security news and topics related to that. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's really insightful because I've been learning. It's kind of like a learn-as-you-go thing, like all of life things are. But uh, hanging out with, like, Xavier and Mo, who do their day-in and day-out jobs, specifically uh, Xavier does the purple team, which means you find the bugs make proof of concept and then you're also the guy who has to be on the other side of the blue team and fix the bugs that you found and had to report and work with people to do it uh so you just kind of learn a lot hanging out with people like that and watching them do their jobs so that's been kind of fun um because cybersecurity is really hard <laughs> capital one is the recent victim that proved that it's also it only takes the reason security is so hard is you have to be right all the time so it's been i think about that like you have to be right all the time like they did a lot of really solid security work their logging was great which was how they found the person but the, the one one little miscontinued firewall and uh way they go uh but speaking of firewalls i did do some more videos on the uh linux firewall and how to make it easier to use uh, it's the ufw but they have a gufw for putting a gui on it so i did a video on that which is pretty cool i took a dive into parrot linux uh, which i'm using on my laptop still i really like it and i did a video on how their anon surf mode works and the new features they've added to it which including uh really easy ways to just rebuild the onion routes all these little command line or ui driven to do that and, you know, ways you can prevent all the DNS leaks and everything. They kind of took care of it. It wraps your whole computer in Tor. Uh, that was a fun video. And I've been doing a handful of videos on FreeNAS because uh, FreeNAS sent us the new Mini XL Plus. It's a, uh, that's what these boxes are floating around over here. And I, was, I was looking at that, I'm, and I'm hoping you're going to be able to show it to me after the show. Absolutely. Um, we have two of them here. I've been doing all the XL Plus. It is a really nice 8 well, actually, 9-bay, because of the caching drive, is a hot swap as well. 9-bay, um, eight, three, eight, three and, and one two and a half inch drive, uh, 
NAS server with a 10 gig, two 10 gig ports on it, RJ45. Uh, so if it's a pretty nice, neat package with 32 gigs of RAM, IPMI, nice board, really compact. But one of the features that uh, blows my mind, and this is a really neat thing for a NAS, because this is, this is targeted at people, let's say, who are uh, working out of their home that need NAS storage. Well, that same person will complain because they can hear the drives or hear the fans. Uh, they went out of their way to put, like, rubber dampers on every fan. It's just whisper silent. So... Uh, eight large drives of storage you can put in, you know, let's say some 10 gigs, you know, 80 terabytes, was it with 80 terabytes of storage if you did that? So if you've been in the 10 terabyte drives, so plenty of storage. You can put, Actually, if you put in, what, 14s are out now? 14 or 16s? Uh, I believe 14s. Yeah, so 8 times 14. There's a lot of storage capabilities you could put in there now, so. Oh, 16. 16, as of uh, June 4th, uh, Seagate now has these 16 terabyte drives. That's awesome. Eight times 16, pop pop that in there, and that's how much storage you could have sitting. And when Phil sees it, I think it's only like two feet tall. It's pretty small. It's a small box. What does this retail for? Uh, about $1,500 without the drives, which is pretty reasonable for a 32 gig of RAM, a 10 gigabit system. And with dual 10 gigs on there, I mean, you could bond it together and have 20 gigs. And there's actually two more slots inside. Uh, so when you go inside of it, you can stick two more drives inside of it, uh, either ca- another cache drive or you can you can set the cache drives in uh, FreeNAS to be redundant. So you can have redundant write cache, and read cache doesn't need to be redundant because if you lose it, it's only a read cache SSD. Uh, it'll just default back to the drives. Like you can pull it out live, the system pauses and goes, oh, I guess it's not there anymore. <laughs> <And> it just, <laughs> it'll send an error to you, but it keeps serving the data. So uh, no problems there. But yeah, that's why I've been I've been uh, goofing with it and playing with it. I wish Intel would have renamed the Atom processor. Now it is an Atom, but it is the latest generation of Atom, which are substantially in every way. Matter of fact, Atoms are mostly only used for server boards now. Their whole retail line that they had, the early ones, that they were a chip that bore the same name but was not the same chip. They rearchitected them to make them much better. But and of course, some people right away the comments in that YouTube video. But it's an add-on processor, and they're terrible. And I'm like, no, 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 read on them. They're you don't see them in the retail market because all the retail ones were a terrible, terrible device. And then the new ones are actually quite fast, very power efficient, um, multi-core and score very high uh, to be able to do plenty of you know, transcoding and Plex or anything else, perfectly fine without a problem. Uh, virtualization, and it's got Rancher. Uh, if you want to do with all the Dockers, it's got Docker container options. And and for those of you who don't know, Rancher is a fantastic, um, they they call it an OS, but really it's a, it's a GUI on top of uh, these containerization tools. Yeah. And you can drag and drop routes to create your own networks just in your browser. And that is super powerful rather than staring at uh yaml lines in a file somewhere oh yeah so there's um and that's becoming more popular and they're really working on that it has beehive in it as well so uh that's the free bsd virtualization stack and so you can not only have a nas but now you can run jails and virtualization inside of it as well so and of course you can add more memory if because uh, 32 gigs is enough to run it but then you know you start virtualizing things, and then you put your Plex library in there, and it's, you know you know, need a little more RAM. So, <laughs> and let's say uh, if you're running Rancher and you have some sort of application that experiences um, crashing or buggy behavior after after upgrading it, they have a fantastic rollback option. Oh, that's cool. Which will roll back to the previous known working state. Well, and you could do that too because it's CFS. 
So that that's like another on top of it ZFS. Yeah, which will roll things back. So it's a, it's a great device. I've been I've been excited about it. So I have a few more videos to do. Uh, after that, let's move into. That's all I've been doing. Well, in playing with my Tesla, I talked about that last time. <laughs> that's that's still a fun gadget. I haven't hacked it yet. It's on the to do list. Uh, listener feedback. And we got the answer we desired of routers and routers. Yes, from our friend uh, Nigel over in England. He says that um, as a British listener, he can cons- he can confirm that we have routers in our network and routers in our carpentry toolkits. <laughs> nice, and I'll, and that's that actually makes sense because now you have a better distinction between them. So the uh, is that something that was obviously it's confusing because you know Phil's for us it's a play on words. Phil's like a router with a router. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Phil's doing play on words on it, and it's now it makes sense now to call it root. But I guess that word is also interchangeable, root and route, and it turned into a whole uh, stupid discussion the other day. About that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're going on that. And someone else had a question, and I did not reply. I did actually see it till I started digging through the show notes about land speed issues. So I have a gigabit LAN, and I have run Cat6 pretty much everywhere. The new router, for those of you in England, <laughs> uh, is a 2 by 2 uh, port, 1 gig switches, Synology NAS, a few other devices, and Fios gigabit internet service. But at the very basic level, I've been running tests inside the house. As to the internet, and results are all over the place. Now, he, the David here runs some tests, and they are getting... It looks like a pretty solid gigabit inside their network, but the problem appears to be outside the network when they're downloading. Now, their upload is 931, but their download is 754. And I'm going to say it's it's hard to nail down exactly where the problem is because there's a lot of pieces uh, that are happening. Now, Doxus 3, uh, now, is Fios, the thing is, does Fios come over cable or does fios come over fiber so i think fios stands for fiber but i don't know how they physically deliver it it operates over a fiber optic communication network okay but is the last mile still fiber i guess was one that that can be a factor other factors are the equipment they're using will that equipment now it is gigabit capable but is it more than gigabit capable that is another potential bottleneck and then let's go upstream to the first hop the first hop is going to be their network operations center where they distribute this from do they have and companies have frequently been have been known to do this they're going to have a lot of traffic shaping going on and bandwidth shaping they may not allow even though it has gigabit capabilities they may roll it back and set a percentage. So from there, you could end up with this 750, this three-quarter mark. Now, this is where, when you start going in a further hop back again, because he's using a speed test, are there any throttling going on at speed test? Can they keep up with that? Do they have upstream limits? Because any place where you host uh, bandwidth, there's limitations to that bandwidth. What is, do they have any throttling on there? Um, I, it's hard to answer. I don't really know the answer to this question, so I'm just trying to give you insight as to where some of the bottlenecks may occur. And as you scroll out across the Internet, as you go to all these different places, you will realize you'll get a lot of different speeds from different websites. And as people get, and I've, uh, I've had the privilege to be at companies that had really, really fast Internet, 
and you'll realize some things won't load fast because the site can't load it fast. You're like, but the internet's fast, but this site, I'm like, yeah, that site has, you've exceeded that site's bandwidth, not yours. You're not the bottleneck anymore. So there's a lot of factors in there. So I, I, I don't have any definitive answer, but I at least can give you some ideas why you may not be getting the full one gig. This is actually why even with Comcast, you may, uh, and no one likes Comcast, but one of the true things that they have, we've seen speed tests give really low results Google give really fast results with the Google tester, but inconsistent ones, because the Google test one seems very inconsistent, but Comcast give really fast results consistently. And what we kind of figured it is, when you're doing Comcast, you're never leaving the Comcast network. So the Comcast speed test doesn't leave, but anytime there's an intersection uh, between Comcast, level three, and then whoever the next provider is on the other side, you're gonna get all these factors of slowdowns. And it's just gonna be the bandwidth shaping that's going on. Um, and you know, you're talking about consumers having gig internet, so uh, I don't know that they've really adjusted everything for that. And of course, the only people really checking these stats are people listening to this podcast and me and Phil. <laughs> like, we would be doing this all the time, so we're with you. Like I, I think it hopefully is a solvable problem, um, but I don't know that it is. <laughs> uh, so, listener David, um, you could try calling Verizon and asking uh, what type of medium is uh, the last mile transmitted over. Yeah. Because there may be some limitations to that uh, last mile. Because I've seen that with a couple of them, uh, and this is where they sued. We brought this up a while ago. It was through the um, Net Neutrality Act that we were able to gain insight. Is it Charter? The one in New York. Well, they got sued because the insight, because when they started looking at their equipment, they didn't have the right equipment. The equipment was not Expect to deliver bandwidth at what the salespeople said they could. So no matter what the salesperson told you, the equipment inside the building absolutely could never deliver that. They they didn't even have Doxis three. They had Doxis two, but they were giving speed ratings that was beyond the spec of Doxis two. They're like your network infrastructure cannot handle the advertised speed on there. So that's how they got hit by the Federal Trade Commission. So some of these companies do things like that. They may sell one gig, but what are they? delivering so and that, that's true for anyone not just files i don't know enough about the files because we don't have it here in detroit uh but yeah these are all the factors that go into it we have a request from 5150 of linux basement he wants us to give a shout out for the kansas linux fest coming up august 9th through the 11th at the wichita state university campus yes and you can go to kansaslinuxfest.org Yes, head over to Kansas. Uh, they got tornadoes. They have flat land and corn, and then the Linux Fest. <laughs> That's all I know about Kansas. And Dorothy was there once. Look at us. And fifty-one fifties there. He's great. Uh, we, I like seeing him. I've met him numerous times. That uh, he travels all the way from Kansas City to Detroit. It's an interesting guy. I've also hung out with him at the Ohio Linux Fest, which I'm hoping to attend this year. I think the date got set for the Ohio Linux Fest. I think. I know they're asking for. Um, I believe it's first. November 1st. Is it November 1st this time? I, it's different than it was before, so i, I got to get it in my calendar, and we'll. you guys can look it up. Is it November 1st? November 1st uh, through the 2nd. Awesome. So we talked about that. I This year I plan to go. So if any of our listeners are going, um, Tony wants to go as well. So I don't know. Are you going to make it, Phil? I don't believe I have any uh, work stuff planned. Okay. Yeah. I well, want to. Road trip. Cool. We're going to take the Tesla there. Yes, we are. It's going to take us there. <laughs> I love self-driving mode. <laughs> All right. And speaking of the Tesla, I believe this is the last one. Um, 
This is from listener Roger. He says, uh, he says when he was on his way home from PinguaCon 2019 um, back to Wisconsin, he saw in St. Joseph, Michigan, a, a Tesla charging station. And then he did some research on Google Maps, and he's, he's like, these things are popping up everywhere. There is a ton of them everywhere. So that's actually been kind of cool. The, the, you can uh, travel pretty much all over the U.S. right now. And I can't remember if we read that in the last show or not, but, uh, or we just discussed it. Sometimes they get mixed up. But uh, either way, they are all across the U.S. Uh, Tesla's website has a map of all of them, and my car has a real-time map of all of them. It even tells me who's parked at them. Like, it tells you how many people are waiting at the station. So if, if there's like 10 stalls and there's five in use, it lets you know that. Right, like right in the dash of the car. Uh, apparently in California, that's a, that's a problem because they get, their, uh, they get lines. Like, mm. people waiting to use the chargers, man. It's like a gas station. <laughs> <laughs> so, that hasn't happened in Michigan. We don't have that many of them here. The, the couple Tesla owners that are in Michigan, we all, we can, it's like, a, it's like a cool hangout. It's a meeting spot where we can all talk to each other. We just go to the charge station. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm charging here at my office, so I don't go there as much. So, anyways. Uh, jumping over to, that's all we have in listener feedback, right? That was the last I, one? I believe that's the last one. That's what I see. All right. So let's move on to DistroWatch. Yes. All kinds of fun distro stuff. And I think we didn't see... Yep, deep in. So I have this kind of in the news, but it, I'll bring it up here. The new version of deep in is out, and they should... should they, I like... What did the comment say? It should crash less. <laughs> deep in is a desktop environment uses a KWIN, uh, KDWIN... KDE window manager for composing and management, as well as boasting a crop of bug fixes in this one of the new DDE KWIN. It's said to be a lighter and less crashy. That was the word I was looking for that they had in there. I sure would hope so. Less crashy. And deep in, I didn't, I thought that was weird when I seen this on the OMG Ubuntu site talking about um, the KWIN in there. So they do so much customization. Like, it doesn't look like KDE. Uh, it's it's a very customized distribution. It's been controversial in the past due to the fact that it was forged in China and there was uh, issues in terms of what data it was collecting and sending back, which they have since uh, reversed. And it was kind of a, as I understood, like that whole hoopla, I bring it up once in a while, but it was a misunderstanding. Like we thought we wanted to send data and people's like, no, we don't. Okay, so we took it out. So they were my understanding they're pretty complacent um, with sending data, and of course the general attitude for us is no data goes out to governments unless we want to. <laughs> uh, so what else was in here? I saw that Red Hat uh, has released the version 8.1 beta, and that's very exciting to me because I like to use CentOS on my own servers, and uh, CentOS 7 has been out for, what, three-plus years now? It bet, it bet a minute, yeah. So uh, RHEL 8 is going to have uh, improvements to firewall configurations, new SE Linux profiles, and more options for their image builder. Um, this release also includes updated drivers that deliver new features and bug fixes um, for their supported hardware, improved manageability, and... Uh, better log filtering based on services, and hopefully a newer version of System D. Ready for newer versions. Um, OpenSense does have a new version. I still don't really have an interest in trying it. It just doesn't interest me. But I know I have a massive amount of people that follow my channel that do keep asking me to try it because they like it. Um, they new version out, but this is 
also pointing out the reason that like maybe it's fun for home but i don't have time to update all the time because it, it like i think last week we talked about a new version of OpenSense, and now here we are two weeks later talking about a new version of OpenSense. that's cool if you want to be on bleeding edge i have to have very stable firewalls that we install at customers that i don't have time to update all the time so <laughs> um and i worry about a lot of frequent updates it's cool to get features it's cool to play with features um but the but stability is where you know we want that at the edge Libra Elec has a new version. Um, so Libra Elec is a minimal operating system for running the Kodi Media Center. Oh. Uh, primarily on Raspberry Pis is where I've, where I've used this project. And I got a Raspberry Pi 4, so maybe I'll have to try loading that on there. I got all kinds of things I want to load on a Raspberry Pi 4. That thing's fun. So there is a, there is a caveat to this release that says Raspberry Pi 4B images are quote-unquote late-stage alpha and are not feature-complete or perfect yet. Oh, so you might well, want to hang out on that for another week or two. Yeah. Alpha's not... I'm not ready for alpha. <laughs> I don't know. I could do some bug reporting. I'm impressed, though. You can do 4K on a Raspberry Pi, if I'm not mistaken. Do 4K. It's got the dual screen out. Like I, I believe that's correct. Yeah. So we're... It's, gonna be, it's actually going to be a nice media center, I think. And I'm looking at all the different cases because the downside is it gets hot. But now they make cases with, uh, like, the case is a giant heat sink. So there's solutions to this heat problem. <laughs> and I think that's just really a, this whole July, everyone was on vacation, I think. Everyone took a holiday, and they didn't release a bunch of distros for us to talk about. <laughs> but that didn't stop the news. So there's plenty to talk about there. You got a few articles you want to start with? Sure. Um, the the first thing that I found was uh, a, a new Blender release, uh, Blender 2.80. Um, back in episode 311, we mentioned that Epic Games awarded the Blender Foundation with $1.2 million for um, more development work and ongoing uh, improvements to uh, the Blender software. Well, this is the first big release since that award. So Blender uh, 2.80 features a redesigned user interface that puts focus on the artwork um, that you and your team will create. There's a brand new dark theme and modern icon set. Uh, keyboard, mouse, and tablet interaction got a refresh. And left-clicking, uh, left-click select is the new default. Um, quick, the Quick Favorites menu provides rapid access to often-used tools. And just from a look standpoint, because I don't use Blender, it looks great compared to what I remember as a teenager. Yeah. Well, they've been updating a lot. It's still a really hard project to use. Uh, well, it has a steep learning curve, but it's a really complex and very powerful tool. And like any complex or powerful tool, it's going to have a steeper learning curve. Uh, but it's exciting to see that there's a lot of uh, action and development of that. Cause there's people who you know do a lot of design work or uh, the 3D rendering and modeling. There's every, doesn't every other year, don't they have that movie they do with it that with the rabbit? Isn't I believe that, I believe so. I yeah, I can't remember what it's called though. I just remember seeing it. and I'm always fascinated. Like this is, uh, Blender B Rabbit. Blender Rabbit. There we go. They update that. So this what, will we get a new Blender Rabbit as well? It's been, <laughs> it's been a while. We get a big big buck bunny Blender. <laughs> the ongoing saga. Anyways, that's very cool. And this uh, this is for uh, the Manjaro. Uh, Linux users out there, um, but apparently the the Manjaro community was in a bit of an uproar this week uh, when 
the Manjaro project announced that it would be swapping out the open source uh, Office Suite LibreOffice in version 18.1 and replacing it with the proprietary FreeOffice. Um, this is in part due to a new partnership between the Manjaro developers and FreeOffice creator, a company called SoftMaker. So after this community backlash, the Manjaro developers decided on a solution that would make everybody happy, um, offer their users the choice of which office suite to choose. Oh, nice. And uh, SoftMaker uh, went on to publicly state that they'll be adding um, uh, functionality to save to Doc, XLS, PowerPoint, ODT to their free office, free tier as well. So that's a win on, on the proprietary front. Um, so uh, pretty cool. I've still personally never used Manjaro Linux, um, but I've never been a big arch guy. Yeah. It's, it, me and Phil talked about this before, sure. Like, we're boring because we don't distro hop, um, but that's what has made Jay's Linux channel very popular is he loves trying new distros. Yeah. So. I, I, th I think that's the beauty of uh, open source. We get to choose how we want to use it. Yeah. Some people don't like choice, and I say just go with Ubuntu. It's a great – if you don't know where to start, start with Ubuntu because I think they've done a good job on making it easy. Uh, but if you're one of those people that likes some of the features of each one, you can try all of them. <laughs> it's been a lot of time doing it. <laughs> and speaking of trying all of them, um, Debian 10 Buster is now available on DistroTest. Oh, nice. So DistroTest is something that we discovered recently. Um, it allows you to take a look at uh, uh, new and prior existing operating systems, being able to test them live in your browser without having to install any additional software. Um, when you want to test out, uh, let's say, Debian 10 Buster, you, you click start and you'll be placed into a queue typically typically about 60 seconds and then you'll get a vnc pop-up and you'll be able to play with this system install software change files nuke uh the file system and then it'll shut down and you can do it all over again which is very cool yeah and uh when it, i think it might have been a forbes article one of the bigger news sites had published about it and then the site got much slower <laughs> <laughs> It was like the old slashed out effect all over again. So uh, if it is slow, it, it's because our show is popular and, you know, uh, we directed more people to it. Or, <laughs> <laughs> um, But that, that happens once in a while. But I really like the site. Uh, it's definitely really cool to be able to try out different distros on there. But, yeah, Buster's on there now. So, <laughs> And then, finally, um, GitHub has started blocking users in uh, several countries, um, including Crimea, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Syria, from accessing its services. Um, this is due to GitHub being a Microsoft-owned company and having to comply with U.S. trade control laws. Um, GitHub had to uh, disclose the action on a support page, um, noting that users ultimately are responsible for ensuring that their use of the product and services complies with applicable laws and regulations of the host country, being the United States. Um, this blocking is done based on source IP address and payment history for GitHub uh, Pro accounts. GitHub states that developers are not allowed to use VPNs to circumvent the ban. However, uh, yeah. the, the type of people that this ban really affects are the group of people who are most likely to be able to find a way around this type of ban. Yes, that's going to happen. Um, I think that the government is trying to play uh, catch up. 
You know, it's and this has come up a couple times uh, where I I don't know where my company lies legally on it, but I have been contacted by people in our countries wanting VPNs to specifically circumvent things. So I'm kind of like, well, I'm a U.S.-based company, so I always turn those down uh, because I'm kind of like, eh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to risk it. It's like it's they're usually smaller jobs of setting up VPNs in our countries uh, where the countries have blocks or we have blocks and they want to get around it uh and i'm like yeah so it's one of those things i don't want to be in not compliance of law and i'm very basic in this but microsoft certainly doesn't because companies that don't follow u.s law are also at risk of losing any type of u.s government contracts they may have by which microsoft has a lot of them so microsoft uh isn't going to walk a fine line and go well you know there are a couple no no, they're gonna go no hard no (laughs) <laughs> and uh, do that. So I've seen people really beating up on Microsoft about it. it it's one of those things that you, you, you can't really blame them. Every U.S. company has to yes. uh, comply by this. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I, me being small, I'm, I don't have a team of lawyers to figure it out, so I just err on the side of caution and not do any of it. But Microsoft does have a team of lawyers, and they figured it out. We're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> So you can't really hate them for it. It's a it's a government thing, not really a technology uh, thing. But it is concerning. I've seen this pop up a lot. A lot of people are talking about this. And it, I feel as though some of those developers uh, may feel ostracized because they want to contribute. They're not in a country that is um, in good relations with the U.S., so it kind of puts them at odds because they want to be a, an active contributing member of there. So uh, and hopefully they'll work out VPNs and maintain good OPSEC so no one knows that they're not really coming out of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's also uh, being able to use uh, Atlassian's Bitbucket yeah. hosted uh, Git server. Um, Atlassian's an Australian-based company. Oh, yeah. Different rules. Mm-hmm. There we go. So there's, there's ways to work around this. And the final thing that I have is a couple of cool tools that I found and played with recently. The first one is a tool called Sampler. It's a tool for uh, view, visualizing and alerting on shell commands right in your right in your terminal. So it allows you to see uh, various types of graphs, um, various metrics, and you configure it with just a simple YAML file. However, um, the license is pretty restrictive, and it can only be installed by a single user um, per the author's. Uh, request. Now, for what it does and how it presents the data, I'm hoping that someone will come along and be able to re-implement this in whichever language and style of their choosing with a less restrictive license. Yeah, that's that's it really does. It's all in terminal, so it's all NCURSE's uh, interface. It looks really nice to be able to present data. Um, I don't understand, and maybe we can reach out to them. Maybe the person could just adjust their license, too. There, There is an open bug. It is the number one uh, talked-about issue on this project. And again, this tool is called Sampler. And uh, the, the last cool tool is called FlameGraph. So Flame Graphs are a visualization of profiled software, allowing the most frequent code paths to be identified quickly and accurately. I found this while needing to troubleshoot a DNS server. Um, this DNS server was using excessive uh, CPU cycles, and I wanted to know why. Um, so if you have a Linux system, a BSD, Mac OS X, or Windows, uh, you can use tools such as SystemTap, Perf, Dtrace, 
um, and you can view what your CPU is doing and where it is wasting time. Which and, is always fun when you're figuring stuff out. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was able to take uh, some of this data and bring it back to the developers of the DNS software and say, hey, I'm seeing this. Can you help me understand why? Very helpful. And visualizing that, especially you deal with a lot of things that are in larger scales. So that's very helpful tool to be, uh, be able to visualize that better. And that is, again, that's a tool called Flame Graph from Brendan Gregg. Very cool. Link will be in the show notes for that. Kind of, it made me think of this, but um, I also, when I, one of the problems I had, and Phil's kind of looking at screen while I'm doing it, there's a tool called FlameShot for doing screen grabbing. Now there's a, a screen, the screen tool I've used previously uh, hasn't been well maintained, so it has problems in newer versions of Ubuntu or even other distros uh, getting set up because of a lot of missing dependencies. This doesn't have any of those problems, uh, but it allows you to grab a section of the screen and then even do th uh, notations on it. Like I love pointing arrows of telling people where to click. That is fantastic. I wish that the Ubuntu screenshot uh, default utility had those functions. Yes, and then you can even from there make notations on it and then copy it into only the clipboard. So now it doesn't exist anywhere, and I can paste it into an email, which frequently I do at my regular job of I grab a screenshot when someone says, hey, the thing isn't there. I usually screenshot the thing that is there and just draw an arrow, <laughs> and I'm like, you have to look right here. Or if I'm, uh, yes, that's, it's me. It's more of a tool I'm being a smart ass about, but it works really well. <laughs> I, arrows that point at where people are supposed to click. I find myself doing that a lot, but I have to go through the step of opening up GIMP to do these things, then exporting. You can see how fast this is. I grabbed it from the top corner. I can make notations and draw on it. I can draw an arrow to the thing that people want, and then I just hit the copy, and it goes in the clipboard. And then I paste it right into uh, email or Slack or all the other places I send things. <laughs> it's right here, you... Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it happens a lot. It's working in tech. Anyways. Ah, uh, now System76. This is neat. Now, I'm hoping soon we're going to get an AMD model, but I know AMD's releases are uh, quite new, so they haven't really made their way into laptops. So it's still Intel. But System76 is launching an insanely powerful Linux laptop with a 4K OLED and an Intel i9. Even though it's Intel, I'm that 4K OLED... So some of the OLED screens I've seen um, that are coming out, I think there's not many companies have them all for laptops, but that's, I mean, OLED's where it's at. They have been hesitant to use them in uh, laptops due to potential burn-in and longevity of the screen. Phones, because we seem to throw them away every two years, it hasn't really been an issue. <laughs> you know, like, trust me, you're going to throw this phone away before the OLED's going to wear out. But... With computers, they're generally on substantially more. They're persistently on versus a phone's, although my wife says persistently on a lot. She really <laughs> likes those clicker games. Uh, she still has not worn out her OLED screen, but there is a degradation over time that OLEDs have. They've gotten substantially better over the years, and that degradation has been minimized, so now it's going to be more viable to put them in laptop screens. And uh, this is going to be a nice with uh, the NVIDIA graphics, GeForce uh, RTX 2070. So this is... A gaming laptop for Linux. It can support up to 64 gigs of memory, and uh, it comes with eight terabytes of initial storage. Yeah, this is this is an awesome machine, 
It uses a very similar body style to uh, my 2017 Oryx Pro. Um, it, it looks almost identical, um, but it has a much nicer light-up keyboard than my Oryx Pro has. And that OLED screen. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. This is a beautiful system. If you do nothing else, look at pictures of this laptop. And and go somewhere, uh, what do they call Best Buy now? A touch store. It's not where people buy things. It's where they go to touch them. <laughs> so if you go there to touch some OLED laptops uh, that you're not going to buy because you'll find them some real cheaper. <laughs> That's what happens in 2019. Um, uh, look at some of the OLED screens that are coming out. And they, there's a distinct obviously just look at the tvs you can see the distinctive difference in them so that's um that's kind of exciting and i love system 76 those people there are great uh and the namesake is the git pull request of linux finally dropping floppy drive support but i say but because if people uh, read that and go what but i have this data on floppies do i have to use an old kernel to copy it no they're dropping support for the controller on the board but the usb floppies which we actually have like two or three of these usb floppies here because well some people still bring in our store people want data off floppies that they found and uh so the usb floppy driver is maintained and is done is a separate driver than this tom when was the last time that you used a 34 pin uh floppy cable oh man i it's been forever i we we had a really old computer get dropped off recycling and uh there was some oohs and ahs at people who work for me that are all like 10 years younger that had not seen such things so, <laughs> <laughs> but I, and we and we did turn it on but i don't know if that counts as using it <laughs> <laughs> i just like the noise i want to see if it made the noise uh when floppies check it goes you know the when they check <laughs> And that's actually all it kept doing, so I don't think it worked. It was pretty dirty, so. <laughs> well, I think we have a couple of clients that might still have things on floppies floating around, but they're not running Linux, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> they're also running Windows 95 on it. <laughs> so in, in this uh, commit message, uh, the, the developer did not have a computer with a working floppy drive anymore, and without the correct hardware, continuing development wouldn't be possible. Um, so that's why uh, Linus decided to mark the floppy disk driver as orphaned. Yeah, it's and they just they haven't made a motherboard in a long. Maybe they do. Maybe there's some edge case, some industrial controller board. But generally speaking, mainstream motherboards, server boards, uh, they haven't had that support for a long time. So it's been gone for a while. Uh, Proton 4.11 released kernel packages available for testing. Now, this is interesting. Uh, so it's going to get better. Proton's getting better. All the stuff's getting better. But what I have two links in here. One is to the Steam announcement and Valve directly posting in the Linux kernel mailing list. Uh, they're taking an active role in developing and uh, working with the kernel developers and Linus to come up with some fine-tuning and tweaks that are going to improve gaming performance on Linux. So um, I really like that it's not like just the Proton project. They're going all the way to the kernel devs and going, let's let's really you know get into this. And we're looking at it and having suggestions that are over my head <laughs> as to uh, exactly how they want to do it, but uh, talking about exactly how to define things inside the kernel for uh, updating faster. So that's... I like this whole, you know, active community development towards the gaming. Even though I'm not a big gamer, um, it would be nice if my gaming stuff that my kids did could all be done in Linux. And it's getting close. It's getting a lot closer there. Yeah, I don't know what the few techs is. <laughs> uh, 
That stands for um, Fast User Space Mutex. Okay. And that's a kernel system call that programmers can use to implement locking um, and, and other things in, in user space. Yeah. So they dive deep and write, they have all the code that they have submitted on here, like how they think it could be rewritten. So uh, awesome that we've got that much involvement from the uh, gaming community and specifically Valve really contributing back to the open source community there. So that's definitely exciting. And you've got to think that this, um, this new code will eventually be used by other software than gaming. Oh, yeah. So this this will probably lead to nice speed improvements just across the board in the years to come. And then the DNS problem you had would be better because it'll be faster. <laughs> oh, let's hope so. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Raspberry Pi 4 and Kelly. Now, uh, the Raspberry Pi 4, the 4-gig model, has become kind of like generally available, and you can uh, buy them on Amazon. You can pick Well, Micro Center had the early releases of them. Uh, Microsoft had them before Amazon did, if I'm not mistaken. Probably some deal they worked out. But either way, not just the Raspberry Pi 4s are out, but the Raspberry Pi 4, 4 gig. And that's important because we want to be able to run browsers on them. <laughs> and browsers are pretty much for minimum of 4 gig to do anything useful. Uh, but Kali Linux, the security Linux distribution, uh, they have theirs all ready to go and ready for the Raspberry Pi 4, which is pretty exciting. I was looking at Parrot. They have not updated much on the Raspberry Pi 4 stuff, so I haven't tried it. It may work fine, but they haven't made any announcements about it, but Kelly has, Parrot being uh, my security Linux distribution of choice. Now, this was interesting to me, and I don't know how widespread or applicable this is going to be, but the concept is really good to me. Um, open source processors. And it, it's one of those things, like it's not easy to start adopting new processors. We're used to the uh, structures that we're using, but probably this may have some data center implications. So Alibaba's chip-making subsidiary, uh, Pingtogue? Pingtogue. Pingtogue. I'll assume that's I'm pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> but uh, they launched their first product on Thursday, the chip processor. Wauntai? Um, Zhaotai? 910. I'll leave links so you guys can, um, sorry if I'm getting words wrong here, uh, which uses open source architecture. A processor will be used in applications using 5G tele- telecommunications, artificial intelligence, autonomous driving, and can lower the cost of related chip production by more than 50%. And this is really interesting because having a whole open source risk fee processor architecture, that can be a little bit game changing because that was going to open more people to be able to fabricate the chips. And that's something you can't do. It's really, really a lot of work uh, to design a chip. And then if all the chip licensing is proprietary, I can't just go, well, I'm going to open up a fabrication plant. We're going to, you know, do our own thing here. Oh, man, these whole instruction sets and everything are all closed source and I can't do it. They they state in this article, to promote innovation, um, the developers of this chip are going to allow... uh, the globe to download some of the processors code for free on github yeah that's that's really cool i don't know i don't think that intel or amd does anything like that they don't at all not to my knowledge they release like different kits to work with their instruction sets but not the actual core of the chip is not open source so this this is and this is one of those things um, if you want to be transparent about things and China has been at odds with the US probably from lack of transparency on certain things but this is a different this is a different approach if you open source everything and this is the same thing with like the uh, 
the Huawei and everything else. Once they start open sourcing it and we can see the code, you get a better confidence in a product because we know what we're getting. So maybe that's kind of a, a dynamic change we're seeing there. And they said, well, this is how we're going to win the market. We're going to be open source. And that's a pretty good strategy. I'm, I'm all for it. I don't have, you, you don't have to worry about backdoors. I know someone's pounding the keyboard right now. No, they're going to do backdoors in it this way. It's open source. We can, we can do reproducible builds. We can compile it. We can audit that the code that we see is the code that went in. Now, they said some of the code, not all of the code. Yeah. So if you're pounding the keyboard, you probably still can. Yeah. But only for the proprietary bits. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see when it comes out. I'm, I'm going to be on the optimistic side, um, but I'll deal with the reality of it when it becomes available, and we'll see how open source they really are. So sometimes the Internet is an awful place, and uh, Facebook is sometimes where a lot of that awful is happening, so they've gotten better at removing some of the awful. And they've open sourced this because other places are faced with similar challenges. No one at the scale that Facebook is. Uh, but Facebook open sources algorithms for detecting child exploitation and terrorism imagery. And this is a really interesting that they will give more of that away. And this is helpful to the smaller companies out there that aren't Facebook. And I know this has been a constant topic and it's a really tricky thing to do. Um, Facebook has all those people they hire to try to audit the stuff that gets posted on there and um it's it's going to be interesting to kind of see how that goes uh there's actually some similar projects that have been done uh for uh, research into child exploitation where if you can where they were taking the photos and using ai systems and people's vacation photos so if someone was missing and they had a picture of the child they could figure out the background and look at all these other photos and figure it out they did this also for hotels so if someone were uh had a child, they said they found the picture in the hotel, but they don't know who the child was, and they're like, I think they're part of this. They could use that piece of picture from the hotel and overlay it with other people's pictures of hotel rooms. All these crazy projects like this that have been open source, uh, they're really tiny, but now Facebook getting involved, this is going to be kind of interesting. And it's all over on GitHub. So that's uh, Facebook, you know, for all the fact that they monetize our existence in every way possible, being the nature of Facebook, and then sell that data to whoever and create controversy. The other side is they've done a lot of open source contributions. The um, A lot of the coding, a lot of the languages, uh, their open source hardware initiative, everything else they do is actually kind of good. So at least there's something good that comes out of monetizing everyone's existence. And first, you know, I remember back when we used to only hate Facebook for getting people addicted to Candy Crush. That was... <laughs> We were a simpler people back then. We were a simpler people. Now now it's like government manipulation and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, there's a uh, documentary um, on Netflix I want to watch about. It's about the whole Cambridge Analytica thing and all the whistleblowers involved and just how... I yeah. saw that last night. It piqued my interest. Yes. I've heard it's really good. Um, I might watch it tonight. So there's... It's, there's Facebook is still Facebook. I never look at companies as good or evil. You know what I mean? There's still a bunch of people, and sometimes there are a bunch of not nice people running it, or they're a bunch of good, but it's not the company that's good or evil. There's probably some good people in there, and some open source coming out of them could be a good thing. <laughs> so, Now, I never thought this would happen. The DTP project, which is the uh, data transfer project. So it's actually an open source project that allows data portability. So you, so when places like Facebook have accumulated all of your existence <laughs> into some type of algorithm, there's ways you can move data back out. And uh, Google has actually been 
one of the forerunners for Google also being someone who uh, keeps a profile and a dossier and you that I've heard is bigger than Facebook's, they actually do allow you to take that data out of their systems. They keep a copy, don't worry, um, but at least you can get a copy of a lot of your data too. Apple has been such a closed walled garden, they usually don't do it, but Apple decided to join the Data Tantra project as well. And I thought that was kind of interesting they got on there. So uh, this does include uh, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, uh, and Twitter. So they've all joined the other big companies on, on this. So I thought that was interesting they even did it. Uh, kind of a quick blurb, but if you're still, there's, I actually know a lot of Linux people that use Apple. And a lot of security people use Apple because until more recently, if you would have even asked me, and I'm an Android person, uh, who's more secure, I would have had to say Apple because it took a long time before Google decided, I guess we should lock that down type things. Uh, Google allowed overlays for a long time when Apple didn't, and they didn't validate. There was a long, for years, people proved you could overlay on top of an Android screen with a nefarious app and make it look like another app and put your credentials in. That was a flaw, but they said, well, so many people use it, we don't want to disable it because that's how they get some of this UI, fancy UI stuff working on there, so if we were to lock it down. Well, that's a pretty major security flaw. A person had did a whole proof of concept, I think they talked to DEF CON and going, we got this app in, and it was in for six months that actually emulated whatever company they were, like, this is a nefarious app we made, not to actually be nefarious, but to prove we could, and to prove that Google won't take it out. <laughs> and, yeah, so it's taking a long time for they got secure but eh, interesting and last piece of open source news i think i have is ibm so ibm decided to open source some of their cancer fighting ai projects and i think ibm probably has a lot more things maybe maybe it's uh, red hat rubbing off on them i don't know uh but i thought this was kind of a cool piece of news that according to ibm's press release they're going to be dumping more on this and i think more people researching any type of medical problems uh you get more eyes on it especially being open source not trying to close everything down uh it helps humanity as a whole so this has a definite human impact on this now there's uh there's several pieces of software here and one of them, I love the name, it's called Pac-Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pac-Man, how deep learning can help predict and explain uh, efficacy of drugs. Now, there's actually been um, a few articles I've read on this topic, and we're learning a lot more about drug interactions uh, through big data. We've learned that it's, we kind of assumed it wasn't a one-size-fits-all. But now we're learning in depth because all these doctors at these large hospitals start reporting that, oh, yeah, you know, this person responds this way and they can start looking at your genetics and they can custom tailor the dose that fits your genetics as opposed to just saying, let's see, you're six foot tall and weigh this much. You're getting this many cc's of the drug or whatever their measurement unit is for that. Um, they've been finding that like certain people are without regard to the size of the person, their genetic makeup is they're either more tolerant to the drug, less tolerant, and all this open source data. IBM's been um, at the forefront of a lot of different medical technologies with uh, as they rent out their supercomputers for this. So it's kind of cool that they're going to be open sourcing more of this. A tool to automate and extract knowledge from scientific publications. That's actually interesting. I didn't scroll down. I only read the cancer one. Same same press release of IBM. They have a couple other tools in there that are uh, for thing for things like that. So that's cool. Thank you, IBM. Keep going open source. Good job. Um, and last little thing is like a little primer, I guess you could say. 
I think this has been a point of confusion because I get a lot. Of, uh, there's been messages to the show about this. Uh, understanding the Linux Etsy password file format and where your passwords are stored in Linux. And I think it's an important thing because this is the uh, getting back to the basics, so to speak. But it just popped up, and you know, it's always a good refresher sometimes to go read some of this if you're not sure how this uh, works. But it's how you are adding, removing, and how users are managing your system. And it's a very different concept for them coming from the Microsoft world who go, well, how does Linux federate, you know, like a large office full of people? And the answer is not easily. <laughs> um, that's not something that is, is solved in the Linux world in a concise way as it is in the Windows world. Uh, but this at least gets you the base to understand how users are managed at that at the system level. So just one of the things I popped in there, and uh, I thought they had a nice explainer on it to understand the user ID, group ID, permissions, home directories. Um, and these are important because these are the same problems people run into when they're setting up things like FreeNAS because they don't understand that this same user password system is what translates to the permissions not working or working with proper group IDs in Samba sharing, FreeNAS, uh, jails, everything comes back to this same type of format. So it's kind of a good read and it will help get you primed for when you're trying to figure out those group directory permissions. Now something that I didn't see in this article was a mention of VIPW. Uh, which is just a, uh, it's a VI shell or Vim um, to edit the Etsy password or the shadow file. Oh. Um, safely and securely. Okay. I've never used that, oddly. I've always just used the user management tools from the command line, you know, add user, change user, and things like that. So that's cool. It's VIMW? VIPW. VIPW. Okay. I will, I will just take a look at that. That's pretty cool. And we have reached the end of our show. I don't think we have anything else to... <laughs> I'm a little tired. That, that Phil, Phil had a great party. Thank you very much. Yes. I, I'm still full, I think. I ate so much food. I was, I was really happy, but then I was like, you get that food coma thing going. So. <laughs> and then I don't usually sleep in, so now it's late. Actually, because we're doing this, like we said, in the evening, not in the morning because of timings. And uh, I don't know. I'm still tired. <laughs> So if, if you listeners out there um, have anything uh, interesting that you would like to share with us, please email us at show at smlr.us. Yes, we love hearing your feedback. Uh, we didn't, I don't think we mentioned it during the listener feedback, but uh, even if we don't reply right away, we try to make sure we get everyone on the show. And anyone who emails us at show at smlr.us. And let us know what we got wrong, what Tom pronounced wrong. We haven't done that in a while. There was a few listeners when I first started because I said a lot of things wrong. So I am really bad. I, I have a hard time with some of the um, Chinese words. So <laughs> that was my favorite tweet someone did when, um, what you call it, the, uh, the, the one that got banned, the Huawei, when they got banned. Someone's like, they're banning them. I just figured out how to pronounce them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. So we love hearing back from you, and thank you, and see you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review, Episode 312, Merge Branch Floppy. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. You don't like it. Bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>